Well, we continue to be in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and we are spending a second week on Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, as found in Luke chapter 11. The version of the prayer that we recite every week, <clears throat> if you have questions about that, is actually from Matthew's Gospel, using really the language of the King James Version. And it includes the concluding phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, this is a quick aside because questions come up when you read Luke's account and how much shorter it is versus what we typically pray. The King James Version, <clears throat> which is perfectly acceptable, was translated in the early 1600s. That's why the language sounds ancient to us. And it was based off of the best available Greek manuscripts at that time. So those manuscripts, uh, otherwise known as the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, included the familiar concluding phrase of the prayer. And since that time, however, other older Greek manuscripts have been found that did not include that concluding uh, phrase in the book of Matthew. So there's a scholarly debate over whether or not it should be included in Matthew's gospel. And it's kind of like if you remember from, I don't know, a month or so ago, uh, the debate I mentioned in regards to chapter 10 of the book of Luke over whether Jesus sent out 70 or 72 disciples. So translators then, and really scholars, uh, debate whether that concluding phrase was actually in Matthew's gospel or not. And so some translations will not include it. So like our Pew Bible does not include it in there, and I didn't go and check, but it probably has a footnote letting you know about that debate, even as some translations do include it, but they'll include it in brackets. Even as all of that is the case, we should have no problem praying the prayer as we, we have it today, because after all, it's actually true that the kingdom and the power and the glory belongs to Jesus. Well, as we mentioned last week, Luke's version is shorter than Matthew's version, even as it has slightly different nuances that actually dovetail very well into Matthew's version. And because Luke does not present Jesus' teaching in a vacuum, but rather he locates it within this broader context where one, if you remember, a Pharisee was denying uh, the goodness of God. And, and Jesus, in turn, has been affirming, no, God is actually very good and gives good gifts to his people. So we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 13, even though we're just looking really at two words today. We're going to read the whole passage to get the full context. So we're in Luke chapter 11. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up, and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us and has done every good thing for us. We pray through his spirit that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear from this word as we meditate on it and work through it, that we would be moved and changed, perhaps in ways that we certainly can't feel or see now, but we trust that through this word you are sanctifying us and molding us into the people you would have us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Now, as I've mentioned in weeks past, typically the Lord's Prayer is understood as an introduction plus three petitions and then the concluding phrase. But for our purposes, uh, really for my own organization and thinking purposes, I'm walking us through Luke's version really in four parts. One, how to address God and in turn how we should think about God and ourselves. And then two, how to ask for our needs and our desires. And third, how to ask for forgiveness, which assumes that we are also forgiving other people. And then four, how to ask God to be with us as we face temptations. Excuse me. Now, last week we worked through the first two parts, how to address God and how to ask him for our needs. And there's a few things I think that are worth coming back to and reviewing from last week just to keep these things fresh in our minds since we're breaking this this passage down uh, so minuscule, you might say, or atomizing it. First, to be able to address God as our Father uh, means that Jesus has given us the same rights and privileges as he enjoys. Now, that does not mean we take on the status of the Son of God, or in turn, we are the King of the universe or become gods ourselves, no. But it does mean that we've become real, not metaphorical, not figurative, but real siblings of Jesus and rightly know God as our Father. So when we say that, that's not just an illustration, it's real. He is your Father. Second, included within this is the implication that all who belong to Christ are equals and joined together as one body and a spirit. So while we can and should pray the Lord's Prayer as individuals, and it's a good one to model your prayer life on and you should, Jesus gave this prayer to his people together. So just as it is irrational for siblings to argue over who really belongs to their parents, so it is when Christians fail to recognize either consciously or unconsciously, and this this actually most often shows up in our practices and how we steward our time, when Christians fail to recognize that they not only belong to God, but to his family, the church as well. We are never merely our own, as the Heidelberg question one answers. We're never merely our own, but belong to others in real intangible ways. So if you belong to Christ, then you belong to his people too. To be a member of this church then puts obligations on you. That's why when someone becomes a member here, That person is required to take vows, and they don't do it in private. They do it in front of God and in front of the body. Third, when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, this covers all the things we need to live in the temporal moment, of course, food, water, air, clothing, shelter, fellowship. But like the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate shortly, our dependence on literal food points beyond itself to the bread of heaven, Jesus the Christ, who is our only comfort in life and in death. So to this point in the prayer, every feature of the prayer 
is dependent on Jesus. Every last part of it. We can pray this prayer because of him. And the very next phrase, which really we're only going to be spending time on two of the words of this next phrase this week, it's no different. All of this depends on Jesus. So verse 4 says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, to rightly understand what Jesus' statement assumes about God's forgiveness and in turn why forgiving other people is fundamental to being Jesus' disciple, we have to take a step back and work through the meaning of the specific language uh, Luke uses. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So in other words, before you can make sense of, of forgiveness and just how big and deep and rich it goes, we need to understand what it is that God actually forgives. Well, in Matthew's version of the prayer, it is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, like what we pray every Sunday. And in both Matthew and Luke, sin and debt carry the connotation of a moral obligation or moral indebtedness to someone else. Now, of course, some traditions use the terms trespass or trespasses, which makes saying the Lord's Prayer as a group far more difficult. But even so, trespass gets at the same basic idea. We have crossed a barrier we should not have crossed. We have broken trust or broken the relationship. We have transgressed a law that cannot simply be undone or overlooked or just forgotten about. And while this should be obvious to us, still, the biblical understanding of sin and debt is offensive to certainly to modern sensibilities, but even to many Christians, even among even some Christian, uh, conservative Christian churches. It's why even in good churches, even in good churches, the temptation is to speak about people primarily or solely as broken or hurting or suffering, which, by the way, all those things may be true. But speaking about them primarily or solely in those things, which can give the impression that what actually ails a person is not sin, but something more clinical or therapeutic or just the unfortunate result of circumstances. No, we, we know deep in the center of our being that this is not how things are supposed to be. We know that depression, anxiety, or cancer, that's just not how it is. We know that, and this is particularly evident in the juxtaposition at funeral visitations when pictures of a lively and a happy person are sometimes on display, all these wonderful moments of their, of their life, even as the person's body lays lifeless in a coffin underneath them. Now, the way the Westminster Larger Catechism defines sin, I think, is a very helpful summary of what the Bible teaches as a whole. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. To put that into modern English, sin is anything where I do not desire to uh, conform to God's law or any transgression or breaking of his law that God has given to his reasonable creatures, that is, to his image bearers. To humans. So I cannot break the law of gravity. That's a natural law that God has put into place. But I can commit theft. 
That is also a law that God has put into place. It is a moral law. And there are really two ways to think about how this works. So on the one hand, sin is, is active. It's, it's something we do. It's something we do. But it is also a condition we have, much like someone having a disease that they just can't shake. So you commit sins even as you have a sinful nature. So go back to the language that Jesus uses with sin and debt. So for example, if I steal your car, there is a moral and ethical obligation involved. I broke the law when I stole from you, so I have sinned against you personally, and I'm morally in your debt. It is also obvious that I owe you a financial obligation too, a debt for the value of what I took from you. So at first reads, you hear that, and this seems like an easy fix, right? And of course, in modern society, it's always an easy fix. Just forget about it. Just return the car. What's the big? No harm, no foul. Just return the car. Now, that may meet the financial obligation. Maybe not, because you put miles on that car. But it does not relieve the moral obligation of debt to the person you stole it from. This is why theft often feels like a violation of our person. Right? The thief didn't just steal a mere object. He stole from me. It's why we so naturally see our possessions as an extension of ourselves and why we often use them sinfully in order to create value or meaning, as in, I am what I own. But what if you wreck that car? So let's go back to the no harm, no foul. Just return it. What if you wrecked the car, or you totaled it, or you sold it? What then? The laws about stealing in Exodus 21 are actually incredibly helpful for thinking through some of these things. For, for certain cases, you have to pay back double what you stole. So if I stole your car, I owe you the value of two cars. And the idea is that what you stole from the man is now being taken from you. And for certain things, like say oxen or sheep, creatures that a family's wealth and future would have been bound up with, if you were to steal an ox and then either sell it or slaughter it, you owe the other person five times the value of the animal. And the reason is that your theft has hurt a whole household. Your sin, your breaking of the law has expanded and affected many, many more people. So it'd be like burning down a family's business. If you steal another human, otherwise known as enslavement, or in modern sanitized language, human trafficking, the penalty is death. You pay with everything you've got. Now, Israel's laws were not haphazard. People sometimes read them that way, but it's just because they don't know how to read the Old Testament very well. They're not haphazard. God commanded these laws because they're good and they're a reflection of his character, and they poignantly teach that the breaking of simple laws, because it's pretty simple, theft is pretty simple, right? They have a moral dimension, sin that in turn creates a debt for the sinner, both financially, that's the obvious one, but more so relationally and spiritually, which is the one that our culture absolutely denies. It denies. For me to say all of this, of course, is frowned upon in our times. It has been for a long time. In fact, critics of Christianity might describe what I, all this of what I said and what I'm getting ready to say as anti-humanist, as if all this talk about law and morality and being in debt to God is actually evil and self limiting. And to the sinful self, I guess in a certain self sense, it is self-limiting, 
right? Because we want to be free to sin however we see fit. And it's been common over the last 400 years for intellectuals and scholars to deny that humans are responsible to God. There really is no God, and if there is a God, he's actually a moral monster. Never you mind that the categories they use to judge morality came from him. And on a popular level, this is what stands behind the phrase, only God can judge me, that you've probably seen on t-shirts in Walmart. That phrase assumes that nobody is beholden to any sort of ethics or morality or law, and so who are you to judge me? And if there is a God, I'm not worried about it. Now, among intellectuals, and, and, and these arguments are always made not against Hinduism, not against Buddhism, or any other, it's always made against Christianity, if there is a common morality, it doesn't come uniquely from our God, and two, at best, it's merely a social construct. That is, it's something people just happen to come up with or evolved to think in order to live together in, in um, perpetuation of the species. Now, it is true that you can find the semblance of the Ten Commandments across diverse cultures over all of human history, so virtually everyone agrees murder is wrong. And seeing this phenomenon alone doesn't serve as evidence that Christianity uniquely condemns such a thing, but it does serve as evidence for the Christian claim that our God is the one who made the heavens and the earth, including all of humanity, and he has ordered the world according to his character. And that's what laws do. Laws order things. Our God has ordered the world according to himself, according to his character. And the biblical view is, is beautifully summarized about how this works in Psalm 19. The true God is the God of Genesis 1 who made all things through his word, all the created universe that you see and don't see, he made through his word. And in turn, he has ordered humanity, his image bearers, his reasonable creatures, according to his word. And the fact that things like murder, theft, and rape have been universally condemned in various degrees across all of human history is because humans cannot escape the parameters and laws that God has put in place for us. No matter how much we try to deny them or agree with such evils when they serve, well, our purposes. We can make the same argument about the distinction between males and females and the institution of marriage. What you see happening in modern culture is nothing new. It's just a different variation on trying to deny God's ordering of the world. Even so, the so-called modern intellectual view is that humanity would have come to this ethic eventually without Christianity. It's the myth that humanity is progressing towards some enlightened future existence and phrases like the right side of history or what you see every major technological corporation claiming that they're going to do for us, they all get at this. And so we can take the laws or ethics we agree with and reject the God and the so-called superstitions that they came from. And it is telling that the irony is lost on them. These days it is usually scientists who, while they are brilliant in doing things like long division, have little to no background in history or philosophy that are the ones who are typically making these claims. If they did know history, in particular the civilizations prior to Christianity or those parts of the world in our own day that have not been significantly impacted by Christianity, they would know that prior to the advent of Christianity, no one, I mean no one, believed in equal rights or the dignity and worth 
of every human being or the equal value of women, let alone ancient peoples like the Greeks and the Romans for as great as they were, they certainly didn't think the poor should be taken care of or that hospitals were a good thing or that common people should be educated. All those ideas came from Christianity. In fact, the view commonly held by such diverse groups, no joke, as the Aztecs and the Romans. So that's a pretty big geographical divide, let alone time frame, let alone language, ethnicity. A commonly held view by both those groups was that marriage was a good thing, but men, not women, men had the right to sleep with whoever they wanted because they have needs just so long as it wasn't with another married woman. It's why slavery was such a huge deal in the Roman Empire, and it was in the Aztec Empire as well. Christianity was the religion that required men to be faithful to one woman and argued that self-control was a good thing. And this revolutionary belief, this revolutionary belief radically changed the world to where people just take this for granted. It has not always been that way. And it's been particularly good for women and for children. And even when modern critics slam the Christian West for, for how long it took for slavery to be abolished, they often fail to recognize that, one, their critique of slavery is dependent on Christianity itself. After all, no one thought slavery was evil until Christians started making that claim in the Roman Empire. Slavery was just the way the world works. I mean, how else are you going to do major building projects? outside of throwing a bunch of human bodies at it. And two, the movement to abolish slavery didn't come from, say, Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist areas of the world, which, by the way, is a huge chunk of the population. It came out of countries deeply influenced by Christianity and were led by, wait for it, Christians. And the impact of that has spread across the globe. But to make the argument that morality is merely a social construct, something we evolve to do in order for, for society to function, it absolutely does not match with our lived experience, even when we wear shirts that say, only God can judge me. This is the claim, for example, of the thoroughgoing naturalist and materialist Dr. Richard Dawkins, famously of the now defunct New Atheist Movement. He argues that morality is merely a product of evolution and nothing more. Recently, Justin Brierley, a, a British uh, apologist, recounted a conversation he had with Dawkins in which he asked him, if we had evolved into a society where rape is fine, would we think it was fine? Dawkins didn't want to answer that hypothetical question and instead commented that the society we actually live in is a society that evolved to think things like selfishness or rape are bad. Never you mind that earlier human civilizations, like the Romans and Aztecs, did not see it that way. So whatever evolution happened, it's been recent, very recent. Now, to say something is morally right or wrong is a value judgment. You're placing or assigning value that assumes a standard beyond us in order to make the judgment and to even concede the existence or category of rape, like, like moving beyond the fact of killing to the judgment of that's murder is itself a value judgment. 
you're applying morality to that. And to make a value judgment is not to say, for example, this is bread. It's to say this bread is good. And that judgment is based on something beyond itself. And we assume that someone else who doesn't share my body, that doesn't have my opinions and tastes and all that, will agree that, yep, that counts as good. So that judgment is based on something beyond itself. And what makes the bread good, let alone why place some kind of value on it? What's your standard? Why even bother saying it? Or far more importantly, why is rape evil? After all, there is no such category of action among all the rest of the animal kingdom. Why do humans, the reasonable creatures, have it? Over the last 60 years, a, a different sort of move to get around the notion of sin and judgment has been made where people have turned inward to their feelings or emotions or desires as the ultimate arbiter of morality. And while feelings and desires can be good, I mean, God made us to have them even as he has them, we have made our feelings and desires ultimate and in turn, unquestionable. So if it feels right to me, who are you to judge how I feel? I can't help my desires. I was born this way. I get to define myself however I want. As I saw recently on Twitter, a video of a parent complaining that her kid's school was not taking her child's self-identification as a cat, C-A-T, cat, seriously, and teachers kept referring to her child by her old human name. She was livid. She couldn't believe that this was happening. And as one commentator on the video mused, if your child is a cat, not only does she not need to be in school, because cats don't need education, the school really need only provide a litter box. So once we reduce truth or morality to my feelings or claim that they are merely arbitrary, things that are social conventions that we just evolve to think, well, where does that leave us with things like, what is a human? Or what is rape? How can we say whether it is good or bad? Justin Brierley followed up with this, this question to Dawkins. He said, if we merely evolve to think rape is wrong, isn't that belief just as arbitrary as saying, we evolved to have five fingers instead of six. And Dawkins agreed. It is arbitrary. And as a matter of consequence, that means that saying things like rape or murder are wrong is as arbitrary as saying we have five fingers. So to call murder evil is, in the end, a moral fiction. It's just a little lie, a little fairy tale we tell ourselves in order to get, just get along as a people. And if that's the case, if these things are just moral fictions, then what Adolf Hitler did to the Jews is neither good nor bad. We can't even say it's unfortunate because that too is a value judgment. It's just a thing that happened. After all, when an adult lion eats the cub of another lion, something that does happen in the wild, it's not wrong. It's not cannibalism. It's not even unfortunate. It's just the way things are. And so to make a value judgment of any kind on such a thing, which we can't help but do, calls the whole evolutionary materialist view of the world into question. Or to put it another way, were that lion to eat the teenager who thinks she's a cat, 
It may violate, violate the teenager's feelings, but it did not violate the lion's desire. And who are we to say otherwise? It's not evil. It's not even unfortunate. It's just lions eating cats. What's the big deal? So in the end, there is nothing intrinsically right or wrong about anything, any, any more than there's any, anything intrinsically right or wrong about having five fingers instead of six fingers. And my point in taking this much time, and I know I've taken a lot of time on this, to talk about the cultural air we breathe, is that our human experience, that we hear this stuff in various degrees all the time, all the times, it does not match with our human experience that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Everyone knows that a teenager cannot magically become a cat because she decided she was a cat. And even the mother of that young woman suffering with that mental illness, which is what that is, still sees her as a human. Otherwise, she would not be advocating for her in a human institution. We know deep in our hearts that things like rape are evil. And the fact that we cannot help but make value judgments on such thing implies that someone, not something, not so-called blind nature, whatever that means. No, a person ordered the world and set the parameters of our lives according to his character. After all, to have a law of any kind, whether it's a natural law like gravity or a speed limit, is to have a law giver. Blind nature does not create laws. Blind nature does not create anything because only persons create well, the way Jesus orders the Lord's Prayer in light of all this is incredibly important. He says, we first sin against God, the one who spoke creation into existence and ordered humanity according to his character, and only secondarily do we sin against other people. So go back to that example about stealing someone's car. So there's never a time in which I just merely sin as if stealing a car only ever affects me. Every sin is first and foremost against God because he made me even as my sin affects a multitude of people and not merely the person I directly sinned against. It's like that utterly foolish and childish phrase. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Only a moron thinks that. And I say childish because it's like a child who believes by closing his eyes he has made himself disappear. No matter where you may be or the nature of your sin or whether you are alone or not, it is first and foremost an action against God. We have broken his trust, his ordering of the world, and are morally in his death. Death. So even when we commit murder, for example, that sin, that breaking the law, is first and foremost against God, whose image we just destroyed. And then secondarily, it is against the person himself. And of course, the effects of murder reach far beyond the dead individual, to his family and community, but also to the murderer's family and the murderer's community. What happens in Vegas touches on every community we are part of in ways that we cannot comprehend. So it is one thing to steal from another human and then to fulfill the obligation of law by paying back double, but what about from God? We sinned against him first. We have broken the relationship and in turn are in his debt. And it's one thing you know, to owe one human one thing. It can be expensive, but it's one human one thing, like say the car. But the nature of our sin is such that we haven't just sinned against God once or twice or even 50 times. We've sinned millions of times. And it's not merely the sins we are conscious of, 
what theologians call our sins of commission. It's all the actions we were unaware of, our sins of omission. So if you're playing basketball and you don't know what the rule about double dribble is, that's on you, buddy. You commit double dribble, if it's a good ref, he's going to call it. And in Bessemer, you might not get it called. You see my point. The law is there whether you recognize it or not, and you will get called on it. So it's not merely, for example, the bold-faced lies we've told and can remember. It's every time we have shaded the truth or gossiped or recounted a story in order to make ourselves the hero or countless other ways that we lie every day. So if you think the national debt is a problem, and it is, it pales in comparison to what God's image bearers owe him because of their sin. And by the way, the penalty for all sin in the end is death, a reality that we routinely, routinely deny every single day. And the fact that even when we know the difference between right and wrong, we still continue to do it, and it often feels right or even good as we do it, points to the reality that sin isn't merely a few bad actions here and there. Sin is bound up with our nature. And it's like a terminal disease we absolutely cannot shake. So the reason Christians so often talk about sin and why it figures so much in our worship service and why this is really the central, if you look at the crafting of that, that prayer, the central focus of the prayer is not because we want to beat ourselves up. It's because sin is the defining problem we face. And yet God in his kindness and his mercy has not left us to die. He has offered us the forgiveness of sins, the eradication, excuse me, the eradication of our, our debt, the restoration of our relationship to God and his son, Jesus Christ. And he is, as we're getting ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the best gift we can ever receive. Now, knowing that this week was a little heavy, and we're just talking about sin, next week we're going to talk then about God's forgiveness and how much bigger his grace is than all our sin. Let me pray for us as we go into the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that you look square at our sin. You alone know how heavy it is, how deep the debt goes. And yet, you provide a way through your Son, through his life, his death, his resurrection, that we too may have life together with you. We thank you for this kindness and this mercy that is new every single morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name through the power of the Spirit. Amen.